Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Four Lessons from One Life, was given on May 14, 1974, by Russell M. Nelson, then the General President of the Sunday School of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is a great honor to return again to the campus of the Brigham Young University. Every time I'm privileged to visit with you, I leave as a better individual. I'm grateful for every opportunity I have to be among you. I'm always inspired by the students here, and especially by the great members of the faculty. I want you to know of my great love and respect for all of you. Now, in responding to the request that has been given to me to share the innermost thoughts that I have at this time, I recognize my inadequacies, for I stand before you not as a speaker or as an entertainer, but solely as a student of the words and works of Deity and as a servant of Him and His children. I'm fortified by the knowledge that each of us is a son and daughter of God, for whose direction I humbly pray at this time. My background of study and service to which President Oakes has made reference has been a most interesting one. Today I should like to distill and discuss the essence of these experiences and entitle that essence, Four Lessons from One Life that I have lived thus far. Now, in condensing all of these views into four simple topics, I realize that I will be guilty of leaving out many important things. But on the other hand, the effort has been a challenging one, the effort to reduce all of the lessons learned and the conclusions derived into these four categories has been a good one for me, and it's a challenging one, one that you may wish to try yourself one day. The four lessons for discussion are, first, the divine creation of the human body, second, the reality of the Spirit. Third, the power of love. And fourth, the dependability and incontrovertibility of divine law. Now, in discussing lesson number one, the divine creation of the human body, I recognize that my years of exposure in the medical sciences has given me a background and a bias that might fully be shared only by a fellow physician. I suppose no scientist is in quite 
a position of opportunity to develop faith in our Heavenly Father, as is the medical scientist, who studies the human body as a daily commitment. To me, the body is one of God's greatest creations, and the miracle of it seems to increase with each passing experience. The fact of your birth and of your being here today is an exciting miracle. As scientists, we don't have any idea how two cells unite to form a human embryo or how those cells differentiate first the primitive cells and then they differentiate some to become a beating heart and some to become a thinking brain. You possess four eyes, two cameras that are finer than any invented by man. You possess two ears that are stereophonic receptors much better than any ever produced by man. These fabulous functions of specific organs are inspiring to each of you, as I'm sure they are to everyone who will study them. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations. If you go in a large modern hospital today, you'll see an instrument, maybe a little larger than this lectern, that is capable of analyzing the saturation of oxygen and carbon dioxide on a sample of blood. The result it provides is known to the physician within about five minutes. Since this machine has been available, the ability of a doctor to regulate machines which assist in the uh, respiration of a human being in need has become infinitely more accurate than it ever was before. Now, within each of us, we have two such instruments. We have two tiny clusters of cells about the size of a sesame seed located in the neck, one on each side. These tiny instruments continuously monitor the bloodstream for the same information with respect to carbon dioxide and oxygen, sending that analysis up two tiny nerves to the brain. The brain then assembles and handles this information and sends stimuli down nerves which operate the muscles of respiration to determine when one inhales and when one exhales. This is the reason one can't stay underwater very long, for when that carbon dioxide builds up in the bloodstream, these instruments assess that information, send that up to headquarters, and then that in information is relayed down to the muscles of respiration which drive the body to breathe and eliminate that excess carbon dioxide. There are many examples of the marvelous defense mechanisms within the body. Have you ever stopped to think about that that we have in the circulating bloodstream? You know, the blood courses very rapidly through the arteries and the capillaries and the veins. It does so in a fluid state. Yet should there be any injury, a cut or a laceration, that bloodstream elaborates a sealing compound to seal the leaks and to stop the potential loss of that precious blood from the body. 
As a matter of fact, I've even seen a major artery snipped in two as a result of an accidental injury and have seen both of the ends that were previously bleeding, pulsating, but sealed shut by virtue of this miraculous process which allows the sealing of leaks, utilizing the elements that were always within the bloodstream as it circulated in its liquid state. Not only that, but this seal it forms actually initiates the process of healing that wound. Now there are many, many other fabulous and exciting defense mechanisms in the body. They're too numerous to mention. We don't even know them all. We keep learning more about them all the time. To me, in the largest sense, this brings us to why or what the physician's greatest responsibility is. In the final analysis, it seems to me that a physician's job is to distinguish those conditions in the body that will get well from those that will not get well with the passage of time. The latter require active medical intervention, whereas the former generally only require support. So the essence of my experience in the medical sciences can be summed up with this statement to which I testify as to the divine creation of the human body. The second lesson is that of the reality of the spirit as a separate entity from the body. Now, perhaps the most obvious evidence of this is that which we see at the time of death when the body minus the spirit is so different from anything we have ever known before. But the greater challenge is to distinguish between the body and the spirit when they are united in the living human soul. I remember one mother who could make the distinction, though. She said to me one day, you know, I have a number of children. They're all very special, and I love them deeply. But there's something special about the spirit of my one special child who is mentally retarded. She's a mongoloid child. Her spirit, though, in spite of her physical problems, is so much more special than any of my other children that I just have to tell you about it. Well, she made the distinction that the body and the spirit are separate entities. Let me tell you about another mother that I went to see one day. I was called to make a house call on a woman who had spent, I think, about ten years in an iron lung. There was no way she could come either to the doctor's office or to the hospital for the medical care she needed. Every breath that she had taken for ten years was by virtue of this respiratory assist device. When I went to her home, I was privileged to meet three children who came in and out while I was there. The first child came and said, Mommy, may I go over to Mary's house and play for one hour? 
The second child came and said, Mommy, will you help me with my arithmetic? And then a little later on, the third little child came, this one too small to look directly into the face of its mother. The face of mother was reached with the contact of the eyes of the child only by virtue of a mirror that had been rigged up overhead so that they could see one another. And she came and said, Mommy, may I have a cookie? Tears came to my eyes in this home as I realized that here is a body about as handicapped as a human body can be. And yet what a blessing it is for the children in that home to have the spirit of that mother there to direct the spirits of those children as they grew and honored her in her calling as their mother. I think we would all be better if we could distinguish the spirit from the body. I was reminded of this one day as I heard a woman say to her husband, How can you love me? There are many women who are more beautiful than I. Well, the woman who makes that kind of a statement needs to know that her husband loves her not for her beauty or lack of it, but it's a spiritual love. It's a love of one spirit for the other. It's true the physical expression of that love is a beautiful and expressive part of their marriage, but it's only incidental. The real love is a love between spirits. Well, this love of one spirit for another was reaffirmed to me the other day as I was taking a middle-aged, pudgy, balding man to the operating room. Beside him was a weeping, wonderful woman, and she looked up and said, Take good care of him. I love him. Well, this is the spirit that resides within each one of us. The reality of the Spirit as an eternal entity was brought forcefully to my attention by the teachings of my dear grandfather, A.C. Nelson, whom I did not meet in this life. But through the readings that I have done and through the dialogues that I have had with my dear mother and father who are here with us today, I have gained a great deal of love and admiration for my grandfather. Years ago, he served as state superintendent of public instruction here in Utah and was a good friend and protege of Carl G. Mazur. On April 6, 1891, my grandfather, A.C. Nelson, wrote in his journal an entry concerning what he called an unusual dream or vision. In it, his father, who had died three months before, appeared to him. In this dream they had a conversation, and, and part of the conversation was led off by grandfather who said to his father, Father, what are you doing? He said, My son, I have been traveling with the Apostle Erastus Snow since I died, 
That is, since three days after I died, when I received my commission to preach the gospel. You cannot imagine how many spirits there are in the spirit world who have not yet received the gospel. Many are receiving it, though, and they are doing a one and a wonderful work is being done here. Well, quite a bit else was recorded in the journal of Grandfather. I'd like to just give you the conclusion of this because it was rather touching to me. The father said to the son, My son, never do anything that will displease God. Oh, what a blessing! is the gospel. Be a good boy, my son. Goodbye. That was the end of the quotation in this journal. Only as we really sense the reality of the Spirit can we realize the opportunities for spiritual growth and development and, indeed, the necessities for spiritual growth and development. The great gifts of the Spirit, such as knowledge, wisdom, discernment, the gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, faith, these great gifts of the Spirit have nothing to do with the body, except that parts of the body may be used in acquiring them. Now I understand why one of the teachings of the Church is that whenever one receives a call through duly constituted priesthood authority, one should accept that call, for here is the opportunity for the Spirit to grow and to be exercised. Those great spiritual gifts that we attain in this life will be with us in the eternities ahead. And so we have the great privilege and responsibility to recognize, and I testify to the truthfulness of the concept that the Spirit is real and it is eternal. The third lesson concerns the power of love. The power of love to me is one of the greatest sources of power that there is. Now, there are many other sources of power. Recently, we've been concerned with the shortage of some of those sources. I refer to the power of love as spoken by the Savior in Matthew 22 and 37 when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And then in verse 39, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. To me, the love of God and fellow men is the greatest power one may have today. This is the power by which great leaders lead. This is the power by which great teachers teach. This is the power by which significant attainment is achieved. And this is the power by which a helpless woman in an iron lung can lead her children in righteousness. Now, sometimes the power of love is appreciated only in its absence. Such were the thoughts of Lionel Bart, who composed the lines for the poor homeless boy Oliver, who said, Every night I kneel and pray. Let tomorrow be the day when I may see the face of someone who I can mean something to.
Where, oh, where is love? Where the home is, there love should be. Home to me is the great laboratory of love. And here is where resides the most important unit of the Church and of society, the family. The other day I was being interviewed by a representative of a national magazine in my office, and he chanced to look upon the desk and see a picture of Sister Nelson and me with our family. I don't think he's used to seeing families quite that size, and he said, Have you had any trouble with rebellion in your youth or drug abuse or moral problems? And when I replied in the negative, he became more interested. He said, When did you and your wife start to place such emphasis on the family in your life? I replied, Before we were married. And then I went on to say, our family becomes one of the major goals we have in life. Our activities in the Church, in the community, our continuing education, our occupational endeavors all go to support the development of the family. Well, then he interrupted me. His interest became a surprise and then surprise one of debate. And he said, well, but earlier in our interview you said, that you and your wife had always wanted to remain faithful to that scripture, Matthew 6 and 3, that says, Seek first the kingdom of God. And now you tell me the family comes first. I think he thought he had me. <laughs> but then I replied with the priorities that I'd long since established before. And I said, I cannot seek the kingdom of God without honoring first the family that He's given me. I cannot honor that family He's giving me, given me without first loving and honoring my wife. I love her. She is my first priority. And our eternal marriage in the temple is our highest commitment. We love our children and their children, both born and unborn. These lessons of love we've learned in the laboratory of our home. And I testify that the power of love is the greatest power on earth today. It is dynamic, it is real, it is all-encompassing. The fourth lesson is that of the dependability and incontrovertibility of divine law. You've read that passage in the 130th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 12, which says that when any blessing is received from God, it is by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. This is a simple statement, but it is as profound as it is true. Years ago, when I entered medical school, I was taught that one could never touch the human heart for fear it would stop beating. But then I took comfort and challenge in that passage in the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 36, which says, All kingdoms have a law given. To me that meant the blessing of a heartbeat was predicated upon law. 
And so if we would work and if we would study and understand the laws upon which that blessing is predicated, then those laws could be utilized for the blessing of man. Well, now, some thirty years later, we can turn the heartbeat on and off at will, knowing that the heart will again beat, provided we are obedient to the law upon which that blessing is predicated. As a surgeon, I see people from time to time who have hopes, who pray, who wish for blessings. And all those hopes and prayers and wishes become overridden because the law has not been obeyed. If the law is not obeyed, the blessing cannot come. I'm concerned from time to time when I hear people in the Church pray for favors and blessings. If the blessings we're praying for are predicated upon unearned favors, we will not get the blessings, nor will we have earned them. If there is no law, there is no blessing. Now, please don't construe my remarks to suggest that there is no place or importance in wishes, hopes, prayers, and faith. They are important. They are part of the healing process. All I am saying is that if the law is broken, you have to assume the consequences of disobedience to law. Now, that isn't to say that repentance isn't available for those who have broken the law. Repentance is divine, and it's part of divine law also. But obedience to law gives one freedom, mastery, and dependability. The Lord said, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. To me, this meant that if we will strive for perfection and achieve it, then we will master the law and control the consequences. Now, from time to time, we see those who try to get by without knowing the law. But to you I would say, whatever your field of interest or your kingdom, learn the law, live the law, and apply it consistently. Don't be inconsistent. There are those among us, those of our acquaintances, who pray for safety to attend their travels during the day and then drive recklessly and lawlessly. There are those who pray for health and then break the laws upon which the blessing of health is predicated. And then there are those who pray for or who uh, profess reverence for life and then argue for abortion or euthanasia. Consistency is forged from self-discipline in recognition and reverence for divine law. Divine law tells us of things that are yet to come. This world is ripening in iniquity. 
which will destroy civilization as we know it now. The scriptures attest that the anger of the Lord is kindled, his sword is bathed in heaven, and it will come down upon the inhabitants of the earth. Those who hear not the word of the Lord, his prophets or apostles, shall be cut off from among his people. The devil shall have dominion and power over his people, but the Lord will have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst. We have a responsibility to raise a generation of men and women worthy to meet the coming of the Lord, for the Lord will come. He will come to Jackson County, Missouri, and there he will be sustained as the King of Kings. He will come as the resurrected and living Lord to Jerusalem, and there be hailed as King of Kings. Then will the millennial reign be ushered in. You strong, wonderful, faithful men and women will bear the load of the kingdom of God on earth in those days of destiny which will come, for they do lie ahead. May God bless you to prepare for those days, and may you know the divine creation of that God-given body of yours, the reality of your spirit the power of love, the dependability and, yes, even the incontrovertibility of divine law. I know that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that this is his Church which he directs by prophecy through the President, President Spencer W. Kimball, whom I sustain with all my heart. This testimony I leave with you humbly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.